American football fans tend to get confused by Gaelic football. It's just as rough, but played without helmets or pads. And the rules are pretty different. You have to solo the ball, which is dropping the ball onto your foot and kicking it back to yourself. It's also an entirely amateur affair. Gaelic football stars will play in front of 80,000 people in Dublin and not receive a penny for it. There's no financial reward. You might get free drinks in the local pub forever. Coming up, we get coached in the spirited world of Gaelic sports and find out why the latest generation of Americans are eager to go to Vietnam for vacation. Imagine a holiday in Saigon. The energy of the city is amazing, and it just mesmerized me right away. There's just this swirl of humanity and noise and color and chaos, and it was just so fun, and it just it reeled us in immediately. Plus, listeners share discoveries from their travels in Europe. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. For some Americans, Vietnam will be forever associated with a bloody war. But it's been more than 40 years since American troops left Saigon, and a new generation is seeing the world in a different light. With a booming economy and lush scenery, Vietnam has become a popular destination for visitors from neighboring countries in Asia and Australia. And nearly half a million Americans are now visiting each year. In fact, the U.S. is the fourth largest source of tourists in Vietnam. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, we'll meet an American who's joined the growing number of what he calls digital nomads. These are entrepreneurs who move to a faraway country and make a living on the Internet. Dave Fox tells us what he liked so much about Saigon that convinced him to move there. And we'll get listener travel reports about discoveries made on recent trips to Europe. Let's start the hour with an insider look at Ireland, where even the sports are steeped in its dramatic struggle for independence. We're joined now by Pascal Fitzpatrick from County Monaghan and our old friend Stephen McPhillamy, who divides his time between Dingle in the West and Derry in the North. Since Ireland is gearing up for their big All-Ireland Gaelic Football Championship in Dublin, let's learn why the Irish are passionate about sports that most outsiders have never even heard of. Stephen and Pascal, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Rick. Cheers, Rick. So, Gaelic sports. Stephen, what does that mean exactly, Gaelic sports? Well, Ireland is unique in Europe that we have our indigenous sports that are the biggest sports in the country. And tourists and travellers come from all over the world to come to Ireland and they see hurling being played and Gaelic football being played and nearly every one of them asks the locals, what on God's earth is that? Because they've (laughs) never seen it before. Because we'd kind of expect to go to a stadium and see soccer or what Europeans would call football. Yeah, if I got a a dollar for every time an American traveller says to me, is Gaelic football, that's rugby, isn't it? Right. Is that what you call soccer? I'm like, no, it's not. It's Gaelic football. <laughs> so there's rugby, and there's soccer, and then there's, there's Gaelic, Gaelic football. football. So, Pascal, how's Gaelic football different than rugby or soccer? It's like a hybrid of the both. It's a round ball like soccer, mm-hmm. but you can use your hands. There's no padding whatsoever or no, no protection. Padding. No padding. Is that no. part of the rules? You can't be protected? No, no, no. And it's a hard physical game, like rugby. So you can catch the ball, the round ball, with your hands. You can take four steps and then you either have you have to solo the ball, which is dropping the ball onto your foot and kicking it back to yourself. So that you can take four steps running with it, but then you have to bounce it off your foot to run four more steps. That's correct. Or and throw it to a teammate. That's correct, yeah. You can bounce it once as well. You, well, you can't throw it. No, you're not allowed to it, throw the ball. It's you a have fist. to strike it with your fist. Yeah, yeah. The ball must be struck. Okay. And the idea then, like soccer, would be to get it to the goalpost. It looks a bit like rugby goalposts. There's a net in the back, however, and there's a goalkeeper as well. So you can score a goal, which gives you three points, or you can put it over the bar, which gives you one point. 
So that would be Gaelic football. And then uh, hurling, how, do, how is that different, Pascal? Hurling is sort of the same rules, only you have a stick. You have a hurl. It's made out of Irish ash, so it's called Clash of the Ash. It's the fastest field sport in the world, so it is. And only in 2010 did they bring in a rule that wearing a helmet was compulsory. Are these rough games just widely played by young Irish men? Is this, is this sort of the national pastime? Yeah. Gaelic football is played all over the island, pretty much, and hurling is played in areas that are traditionally flat or also areas that were traditionally conquered by the Normans. Hmm. So you find counties like Kilkenny, Tipperary, Cork, Galway, strongholds of hurling. Mm-hmm. And then the more mountainous areas are more the, the Gaelic football strongholds like Kerry and Donegal. So Gaelic sports, is that limited just to hurling and Gaelic football then? Gaelic sports are run by a group called the Gaelic Athletic Association, the GAA. Mm-hmm. Uh, it claims to be the largest amateur sporting body in the world. And it has um, about a million members and it runs Gaelic football, it organises hurling, it organises rounders, and it organises handball. Not Olympic handball with two teams, but, you know, two players in a court. Now, I understand the GAA, the the Gaelic Athletic Association, is also sort of contributing to just the the preservation of the traditional Irish ways as well. That's right. The Gaelic Athletic Association was formed in 1884 uh, to promote Irish culture, to promote Irish language and dancing and Irish sports. There is a nationalist undertone to it, at the start, a very strong one, and it was to give young Irishmen an alternative to English culture and English sport. So this is when things are revving up for Irish independence, and if you were a good Irish boy, you didn't want to just play English sports, you wanted something that was distinctly Irish. Well, actually, in 1884, if you were a good young Irish boy, you did want to play English sports because there was a British army garrison in town playing cricket and rugby and soccer, so you didn't have anything else to play because there was no Gaelic football. It was created by Irish nationalists to give young Irishmen an alternative to the English games. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Stephen McPhillamy and Pascal Fitzpatrick about Gaelic sports. And, and Pascal, in Dublin, there's a, a fascinating opportunity to actually go to like a, a museum for Gaelic sports. Yes, Crow Park, our, our big national stadium, where the All-Ireland's held on the third Sunday in September. It's like your Super Bowl. There's a fantastic museum and tour you can take of Crow Park. It's very, very worthwhile doing. Isn't there a Gaelic, uh, a GAA uh, museum there or exhibit? There is, yes. Yeah, you can I remember, even had a chance to hit the hurling. That's right, you get a chance to hit the hurl and kick the football and is that try and score a goal. The hurl, is that what you're hitting? The hurl, yeah. The hurl, okay, because I was going to say hit the hurling ball, but it's actually the hurl. Yeah, well, the hurling ball's called the slitter, but you hurl. You hurl the slitter. Yeah, that's it. Are these sports mostly amateur or professional? Totally amateur. Everything's amateur. But they train like professionals. I've been in the stadium when people are going, ah, Kilkenny, and oh, there's yes. so much spirit. Are, are these players from that town, or yeah, do they yeah. swap them around? That's the key point. You see, you, ha- you play for the team where you're from. I'm from Donegal. Pascal's from Monaghan. There's nobody from Monaghan will ever come and play for Donegal, or hmm. vice versa. You only play for your county, and that's where the passion comes from. See, we've lost that in our sports because players are just on the free market and different teams buy and sell them. Uh, But in in your Gaelic sports, it really is Galloway and Dublin and so on. Do these players have an opportunity to get famous outside of the amateur sport arena? Occasionally, a few of them will become celebrities, but for the most part, no. It's they not don't corrupted really. by money, then. They don't wear a, a headband that will advertise Guinness beer or something no, like that. No, they do have a sponsor on their shirt, and that's that was brought in probably 10 or 15 years ago, and many of the traditionalists in the Gaelic Athletic Association didn't like that. Now, when I was in Glasgow, there's two teams uh, in soccer. One of them 
is for the poor Irish immigrant Catholic community, and the other one is the higher-class Protestant team, and these they were rivals. Celtic and Rangers. Yeah, and that's a big deal. In Ireland, uh, do you have any of that sort of class or, or tribal uh, loyalty, or is it always town against town? Gaelic football is always, at the top level, is always county against county, and the religious and the political thing doesn't come into it because in Ireland the Protestant community doesn't really take part in Northern Ireland, up the north, the Protestant community don't get involved okay. in Gaelic games. Their politicians think that the Gaelic football and hurling is too nationalistic because before every game, the Irish flag has to be flown and the Irish national anthem has to be sung so Protestants in Belfast wouldn't go to the games. It'd be tough for a, a unionist to go to the stadium and have a good time, I yeah. suppose. And also, untold 2007 was it, Pascal? 2007, yeah. The, what were called foreign sports, like any game basically that originated in England was not allowed to be played in Croke Park hmm. in Croke Dublin. Park, and that's the big park in Dublin. Yeah. Now, I was there one Sunday and everybody was heading down. I just went to the stadium and I had the greatest experience. I just bought a ticket. I went in and bought the right color of a scarf and waved the flag and... What an experience for a tourist. Uh, there's so much enthusiasm. Pascal, what is your team? What, what team? My team's Monaghan. Monaghan. And, and Stephen, what's yours? My team is Donegal, pride of all. <laughs> <laughs> and does that stay with you all your life then? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and in the next life. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, whose team is better? Oh, Monaghan. Oh, no, hold on. <laughs> Monaghan, easily no, Monaghan. No, no, no. Donegal have won the All-Ireland Gaelic football final twice. Yeah. Monaghan have won it how many times, Pascal? <laughs> you see, this is this is this is his cherry he always pulls out to try and wave at me. We we haven't actually won it yet, Rick. Monaghan's so never won ne- it. Never won it, no, unfortunately. So, but you wouldn't admit that uh, Stephen's team is better. Oh no, no, no. Stephen's team won it last in uh, 2012. And uh-huh. believe me, I had to work with Stephen for the full summer, so I got all about Donegal, Donegal. I bet you get tired of hearing about oh, that. But the very next year, the next summer, 2013. Monaghan did very well and got to the Ulster final, which is a big deal. You've got to get to your province before you can go ah. on to the All-Ireland. But who did we meet? Only what was supposed to be the next greatest dynasty of football, Donegal. Everybody said they were going to win the All-Ireland hands down. Stephen, for two weeks solid, was ringing me every day, texting me saying, there's no point turning up. Don't even go to <laughs> Don't the even game. Bother. Don't even bother. You know? <laughs> In 2013, the game we were supposed to lose, what did Monaghan do? They stopped the mighty Donegal and beat them. You oh. did? Yeah, and for some reason, Stephen was uncontactable <laughs> for a bit of month. <laughs> so you may not have won the champion, but you were the giant killer. Oh, yes, that was exactly it. I think they, par- they partied so hard after winning that they, they then lost the semi-final. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't used to that sort of, a, that, that quite that thrill. Stephen, if you do win the All-Irish Championship, what happens? Well, you get the glory of winning the All-Ireland final and, and you'll be able to have bragging rights for the rest of your life. Um, there's no financial reward. You might get free drinks in the local pub forever. And I think the teams now get a free holiday, but there's no financial reward. Gaelic football stars will play in front of 80,000 people in Dublin and not receive a penny for it. Is that that sentiment, that, that commitment to the beauty of teams that are honestly loyal to their hometown or home region and that are honestly amateur instead of professional is that whole idea still strong today? Very strong. Very strong. And, and sometimes it really surprises me because you see these lads out training three or four nights a week and they have to have a strict diet and they have yeah. sports psychologists talking to them and they're never going to get a penny. If they go to England and play soccer, they'll get 50000 yeah. a week. Isn't there a pub, uh, there's a guy named Paddy O'Shea in uh, Dingle Peninsula. Paddy O'Shea, Paddy yeah. O'Shea, that's Wasn't right. Wasn't he like a big, big he shot? He was a superstar, seven, all, seven times winner. Or so maybe. so 20 years later... Twenty years later, he's running a pub talking sports. Is that yeah. well? That's it. That's it. But it's such a unique sport, as and you start off at 
like as a young six-year-old playing football for your club mm-hmm. and you move up the ranks of your club mm. and then if you're good enough for your club you get picked for your county mm. and to get picked for your county is a massive achievement in itself mm-hmm. but then to have major success with your county well, that's massive that's really massive that's it, that's massive it. is the word hey Stephen there's a song for almost anything in Ireland and I know you like traditional folk music uh, I would imagine there's some kind of a song that uh, actually you would hear singing in the pubs relating to Irish or Gaelic sports well I was at the final about 10 years ago and they had these singers performing in halftime called the Fury Brothers and they played an old ballad and the chorus of it went like this and I, I always like to hum this when I'm on my way to games. It, these are the Gaelic sports so people who are interested in these sports are known as Gaels, G-A-E-L-S. Mm-hmm. It's the spirit of the Gael that's in our games. It's the spirit of the Gael that's in our games. Be it north, south, east or west, Gaelic games are far the best. It's the spirit of the Gael that's in our games. That says a lot, really. It's the spirit of the whole nation that shows itself in the games. Absolutely. Stephen McPhillamy, Pascal Fitzpatrick, thanks for giving us a better understanding of Ireland's national sports. Thanks very much, Rick. Be it north, south, east, or west, Gaelic games are far the best. It's the spirit of the Gael that's in our game. Up next, an American tour guide who specializes in Scandinavia explains why he's settled into a completely different scene in Saigon. Dave Fox also shares tips with us for visiting the cities and countryside of Vietnam. And we'll check in with listeners at 877-333-7425. Tell us what you've discovered on your latest trip abroad. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Ten years ago, a lot of Americans still wondered if it was safe to travel to Vietnam. Today, more and more Americans are realizing that the war has long since ended, Vietnam's looking into the future rather than dwelling on the past, and it's a perfectly safe and welcoming place to travel. Dave Fox is a travel writer who's been exploring the country for years. Last year, he moved there with his wife. Dave's here to tell us what it's like to make Vietnam your adopted home. Dave, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So you could live anywhere in the world. The world's your oyster. I mean, (laughs) as far as I know you from tour guiding in Norway, and you love Norway. Why Vietnam? I went to Vietnam almost by accident in 2008. Uh, My girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, uh, she and I, I wanted to go to the South Pacific. And she is a teacher. And we could not get frequent flyer flights on the days that she needed to travel for her spring break. And so I asked the airline, where could we go? And they said Beijing, Tokyo, or Saigon. So we chose Saigon. It was was really a random thing. So what was the first day you came into Saigon and what hit you? The energy of the city is amazing, and it just mesmerized me right away. There's just this swirl of humanity and noise and color and chaos, and it was just so fun, and it just it reeled us in immediately. i, I got to say, most Americans, I would imagine, are kind of like me. They think, Vietnam, well, didn't we just bomb them? I mean, do, are we okay there? What's the vibe yeah. about that? Because, of course, it's the children of, of the people who fought us, but still... As an American on the streets in Vietnam, what do you feel like in regards to that? I was nervous uh, going there the first time. I didn't know what to expect. And I, like most Americans, I was born in 1968, so I grew up with images of the war and a country whose name was synonymous with war. But if you go there today, people there really are uh, living in the present and looking to the future. And so I've never encountered any kind of animosity as an American traveling there. On the contrary, it's a very friendly culture. People are eager to get to know the West because I think they're, they're really trying to move the country's economy now, up. Now, the country still is communist, I mean, yes. technically. What does that mean? Because, you know, when I think communist, I, I think Red Square in, in Moscow. But when I think traveling in 
Vietnam, to me, it just seems like a, a capitalist free-for-all in the streets. Yeah, and it feels like that today. There's a free market economy when you go there. I was in the Soviet Union when it was still the Soviet Union, and it's nothing like that. They're free to make money on the streets, but it's still communist as far as your life is controlled and you have to do what the government says. Or there's a one-party no system. Everybody yeah. has to vote, and they have to vote for people within the Communist Party. There is not freedom of speech. There are times when things on the Internet get blocked, such as Facebook and Twitter and the BBC, and people find ways around that to still mm -hmm. access them. But there is there are controls over speech, and so the, the government still has pretty tight control over what people say about them. So you you live right. in Saigon or Ho Chi Minh City, right. and uh, you're a travel writer, and we're at a radio station right now in the United States. Tell me something that will get you in trouble. <laughs> well, I'd rather not. Um, I mean, I do have to think I mean, about that. Is, is that a concern as we talk? Is there certain things that it's just smarter for you not to talk about when you're outside of your home country? I need to be a little bit careful because I am there on a, on a visa that allows me to mm -hmm. live there and the government could, could uh, take that away from me. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, when I talk to my friends on the street there, they speak very openly about their political feelings. But mm -hmm. in the media, yeah, there are controls. And as a resident of the country, I do have to be mindful of that. This is interesting because you have to be careful with what you're talking about. Yeah, here. I do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I won't push that. Let's talk about, <laughs> let's talk about the economy in general. I sure. mean, is, is it just the, the elites in the city that are part of the global economy and everybody else is just planting rice? Or how, how is the economy in general? The economy is improving as a whole, and it, it has actually been one of the fastest growing economies in Asia. Uh, but what you're seeing is a growing wealth gap. So you're now seeing some very wealthy Vietnamese. One big thing I've noticed over the last eight years since I started visiting is a lot more cars on the road versus motorbikes, which is symbolic of the, the growing wealth there. So there are people who are, their, their income is increasing, but there are other people, particularly like you mentioned in the countryside, mm -hmm. they're farming and uh, they're struggling still. There's quite a bit of poverty in the country still. So I get a sense in much of the Pacific Rim, you've got urban economic elites, even working class people in the cities, and then you've got the rural reality, which is still going to be catching up for generations. Yeah, that's definitely the case. And you're also seeing some people in rural areas trying to come into the bigger cities and find other in work. Hopes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How about safety on the street if you're a tourist just walking around in a big city of a million people? Safety is an issue, but it's basic tourism common sense that you'd use in any other, you know, a big city like Rome or Istanbul. Uh, you don't leave an expensive camera dangling from your shoulder. You don't leave your iPhone sitting on a cafe table. It's pretty much common sense. There are the same scams in Vietnam as you might find anywhere else. But I think if you are a, a mindful traveler and just, you know, watch where you're going and how much, you know, booze you're pouring in your brain and that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, because if you're out on the streets drunk at, late at night in Saigon, then you're, you're vulnerable. Pe people are going to be attracted to you who have bad intentions. Sure. I'd imagine, you know, Dave, my, my kids were just in Vietnam and they loved it. It was the highlight for them. They went to Indonesia and they went to Thailand and, and Vietnam was their favorite. And a key for them was hiring local guides. Uh, what's your sense about that? One nice thing about traveling with local guides is it's quite inexpensive to hire them and just having someone who can take you around and show you things. What I like to do when I hire a local guide there is really get into the local culture. And so I'll tell them, like, forget all your history lectures. I can read all that stuff in a book. Mm -hmm. But go introduce me to some rice farmers on the side of the road and, and that kind of thing. Ah, uh, so that becomes your entree to these intimate connections with the real culture. Yeah. Are they amenable to this? Absolutely. And I think if you treat your local guide as a friend rather than a guide and you tell them exactly what you want, most of them are very into that kind of thing. Dave Fox is telling us about his adopted new homeland of Vietnam. You can share your own stories about travel to Vietnam in our website's listener forum. Look in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Elizabeth's on the line from Portland in Oregon. 
Hi, Elizabeth. Have you been to Vietnam? Yes. Hi, Dave. Hi, Rick. About three years ago, my husband and I went on a backpacking tour through Asia, including Vietnam. And our experience, we did hire local guides. One was out of Sapa, and the guide took us through some rice fields in a beautiful countryside. We stayed with local families, had, had that experience of how they lived, how they ate, served food, and basically just took in the the culture. We also hired a guide in, you know, big cities as well to get their take on how things are changing and seeing nooks and crannies of the big cities. So we really like that option versus going with, you know, big tour company. How did you feel as an American in Vietnam, just, you know, hanging out with the local people with a guide in a village, considering that what they call the American War devastated their country just a generation ago? It was interesting. The younger people seemed to maybe not not be as well-connected, I thought, to the war versus the older people, though there, there was a lot of ordnance still in the fields that prevented them from farming. All in all, were you glad you went to Vietnam? Oh, yeah, it was a wonderful experience. That's great. Thanks for your call. Okay. Bye-bye. Dave, when I was in uh, Southeast Asia hiring local guides, a lot of times they would not have their own uh, vehicle, and we would just um, hitchhike or hop on buses or ad-lib our way across the country. Mm -hmm. How would you get in the more rural parts of Vietnam? How would you get around if you had a guide? Well, there's a couple of things you can do. If you contact a travel company, they can always organize a driver for you, and that's another thing. If you're not used to driving in crazy traffic, then I would recommend getting a driver rather than renting your own vehicle. In but, fact, I would imagine having a car with a driver is less expensive than renting a car and paying for insurance so you could drive it. Yeah, I think so. I've never even looked into renting a car there. I wouldn't right. think of it. But yeah, you can rent a car with a driver for, depending on where you're going, how far you're going, maybe 100 bucks a day. So it's quite wow. economical to That's... do. Now, the other way that is the preferred method of transportation in Vietnam, which is a lot of fun if you're feeling a little daring, is by motorbike. And you can hire people in the big cities and they'll drive you around on their motorbikes and it's crazy traffic, but you just kind of roll with it and uh, take some deep breaths. It's a little scary at first, but even going into the countryside, you know, you can hire people and they can get you by motorbike into places that you wouldn't get to. Otherwise, Sapa, the region that, that Elizabeth was just talking about, there is wonderful trekking there also where you can walk for days into the countryside. And, and she, met, she mentioned the Hmong people. There's different ethnic groups that you could encounter? Yeah. So up in the north near the Chinese border, they've got three different ethnic minority groups mm-hmm. and uh, they've got fascinating differences between the three groups. And so you can go and you can, you can meet them. You can stay in their homes. They have these homestays that you can do. And it's, it's a great experience. So if we think about Vietnam and you have a, let's say you got a two-week vacation there, How would you shape, just in general terms, a two-week vacation in Vietnam? With two weeks, you can't see it all. There's a lot to do there. But what I would do is start out in one of the big cities, either Hanoi or Ho Chi Minh City, and uh, spend a few days there. Mm -hmm. And then if you're starting in the south in Ho Chi Minh City or Saigon, as people are casually calling it, then um, go down into the Mekong Delta and Mm -hmm. you can hire these boats to take you through some of the little tributaries. You can go out to the floating markets, which are fascinating. Mm -hmm. People actually, they live on their boats and they have businesses where they sell produce and things like that on their boats. And all of this just happens out in the Mekong River. And it's it's great to see this stuff. So you could do that in one week. And then in a second week, you could do Hanoi and 
then some rural things around Hanoi, Sapa, perhaps, or also um, there's an area called Halong Bay, yeah. which is quite popular. What is that? I mean, because isn't that the postcard image? Uh, yeah, that's what you see in all the tourist brochures. And what you get is these limestone karst formations. Uh, if you picture like really tall, pointy islands that are just poking up out of the water, and they are fantastic. And you can go on cruises out in the bay. They've got overnight cruises. Some of the cruise companies bring kayaks along. So you get yeah. off your cruise boat and you go kayaking around. And that's a blast. Halong Bay has become very over-touristed. It is packed with people. And there's a nearby bay called Bai Tulong Bay, which I like. It's the same nature and fewer tourists. Hey, Dave, we were talking about the different dimensions. And a lot of especially older Americans certainly remember uh, the difficult times during the war. What are the, the top war sites to have on your checklist when you go to Vietnam? Where would you go and what would you experience? In Saigon, you get the War Memorial Museum, which just basically gives you the history of what they call the American War. From a Vietnamese perspective, uh, that museum I find quite balanced and, and actually fair in their representation of things. And outside of Saigon is uh, the Coochie Tunnels. These are fascinating to see. These are underground tunnels that the Viet Cong lived in, and they were literally living underground for, for weeks on end. Some of the tours that go out there will take you to a real stretch of tunnel. They've also got some recreations that were actually made a little bit bigger because our Western bodies, literally, that we can't fit down in the original ones. But ah, it sounds claustrophobic. It is claustrophobic. You've been through it? I've been through it, yeah. And yeah. you're, you're a, not a huge person. No, I'm a small guy you, uh, by you American okay? standards. I fit okay, <laughs> but I still, I mean, I had to crouch down, and it's amazing to think that people lived there for weeks at a time without ever coming up above ground. Dave Fox is my guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. And Dave is just, he's a great travel writer. The world is his oyster. His website is Globe Jotting, like jotting down a journal, globejotting.com. And we're talking about Vietnam. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Joan's calling from Bakersfield in California. Hi, Joan. Hi, Rick. Thanks for your call. Do you have some uh, experiences to share about Vietnam? No, I hope to get some experiences. My husband and I are planning a trip to Vietnam sometime next year. Great. And I have a couple of questions for Dave. I'm pretty good at finding hotels through the usual methods, but we learned actually from you that the more you spend, the farther it distances you from the people who live there. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious how we go about finding some more authentic accommodations, sort of in a budget range, but safe and clean. Yeah, that's a great question, Joan. It, one thing I love about Vietnam is that accommodations really are inexpensive. The hotel I used to stay in in Saigon when I was working on my book before I was living there, I'd pay $25 a night for a, a, a very comfortable, clean room. So is that sort of a simple, concrete business class hotel, or is that something characteristic and thatched? No, in, in the big city, you're talking, you know, a fairly standard hotel. Mm -hmm. 25 um, bucks a night. 25, 25 to 35 or 40 will get okay. you a nice, a, for a double, I'd say 35 or 40. But to answer Joan's question about how do you find these places, you know, it's always a little tricky when you go online, you never know exactly what you're getting. But sometimes if you're, especially if you're arriving late at night, it's nice to have something booked. There are usually plenty of rooms. And so what I will do is book a room for my first couple of nights but then when I arrive, I will spend a little time looking around. If I'm not happy with where I'm staying, then just, you know, walk around for a couple of hours. It's a fun city to walk around anyway and see, you know, see what else is there. Because you can always go in and look at the rooms and see what they've got. Now, uh, the other thing I mentioned earlier is homestays. And you can book those through travel companies. And what they call a homestay isn't necessarily staying in someone's home. But it, it will be something connected with a family at least. And it's kind of like a guest house, a small hotel. 
and they can be a lot of fun as well. Some of them you'll find online. Others, you can get in touch with travel agencies when you arrive, and they can organize those for you. And you could be out hill trekking and, and actually stay in, in people's humble, traditional, you know, thatched cottages. Yeah, they're kind of like farmhouses. I've done that up in Sapa in the north where yeah. we were talking about earlier. Because that uh, would be rich memories. I've done that in, in Thailand and, and Indonesia, and those are some of my favorite memories. And you wake up, and you got your own little veranda, and you're looking out at the rice paddies. Can you get that experience? You can. One thing that's really important in these areas is try to find a, a travel company that is locally based where the money that they're earning is going back to the local economy. Any other questions for Dave, John? Yeah, um, I'm really intrigued by this guide idea because we really hadn't considered that. We like to travel independently. Mm. But if we are choosing to travel independently through Vietnam, is language going to be a barrier? I know in the cities we probably can find people who speak English, but what about when we're going through the countryside? Yeah, in the cities, there are a lot of English speakers these days. A lot of uh, younger people are trying to learn English because it, it furthers them you know, financially and with their business opportunities and things like that. When you get into the countryside, there's not going to be as much English spoken. But again, unless you're going super hardcore rural, if you are in a place where there are travelers going through, then anybody who's working in the tourism industry, English is the language they will speak these days. How about French? Does that help you as opposed to English? I expected it to, and I have only used French on a handful of occasions in the many times I've been there and and in living there. Most people, if they speak another language these days, it's English, unless they are quite elderly. I have a friend whose grandfather, I speak French with him, but that's that's it. Hey, Joan, I'll I'll just uh, encourage you to don't think having a guide is different than being independent. You can be independent with the luxury of your own private Guide Friday, The, the guy who translates for you who runs interference for you, who steers you out of scams, who's your dinner mate, anything. (laughs) And he's also full of cultural insights and history. And it's dirt cheap. I I think you'd save money when you consider all of the pitfalls you'll avoid by hiring a local guide in a country like Vietnam. I've certainly uh, been a big fan of, like Dave talked about, getting a car with a driver who functions as your guide. Uh, My kids, even traveling the backpacker, you know, 20-something route, they had private guides and it was well within their budget and it really made the trip much more smooth and safe and meaningful. And if I could just add one thing to that, I agree with you 100%. When you get a local guide that will keep you safe from a lot of these pitfalls that you can fall into, it's also important, though, to be proactive with them, like I was talking about before. Let them know exactly what you want to do, because a lot of them are trained to take you to certain places and give you certain spiels, and they're happy to get knocked off that path, but you've got to tell them that you want to get really local instead of just going the standard tourist uh, script. Sound good, Joan? Great. That's great and very, very helpful. Thank you so much. Let us know how your trip goes. Thanks for your call. All right. Bye-bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Dave Fox, and Dave's website is globejotting.com. Hey, Dave, if if you just wanted to share one moment that that you've had with a local in Vietnam that sums up the spirit and the, the soul of Vietnam today, what would that be? My very first night there on my very first trip my wife Katina and I, we, we crossed this wide boulevard over to a park, and it was right outside the backpacker area. And just crossing the street, everything changed from all tourists on one side of the street to all local Vietnamese people on the other side of the street. Within about five minutes, we had a crowd of young people between like maybe 16 and 25 gathered around us. It was 930 at night. We found ourselves teaching an impromptu English lesson in this park at night. And three of the people we met that evening became our very close, good friends who we hang out with all the time now that we live there. And I think that was one of the things that that drew us to wanting to live there was just the friends we made on our very first night there. Any traveler with no experience in Vietnam, they could just walk across the street away from the tourist ghetto 
and be surrounded by new friends. Yeah, and even in the tourist ghetto these days, a lot of Vietnamese people are coming there to practice their English. It's very easy to meet people there, and it's great. Dave Fox, thanks for a fascinating look and a better understanding at your adopted home country, Vietnam. Thank you. Dave Fox also teaches travel writing and has published several books that document his adventures with a wry sense of humor. There's more on his website. It's globejotting.com. We'll keep our phone lines open at 877-333-RIC to check in with our listeners in just a minute. Tell us what you've discovered on your overseas adventures. It's Travel with Rick Steves. It's always fun to find out what our Travel with Rick Steves listeners are up to in their travels. We might get inspired to revisit old favorites from a fresh perspective or explore destinations we'd frankly never even thought about. We're at 877-333-7425. Let's check in with Carol from Brownsmead, Oregon. Carol, thanks for calling. Hey, you bet. How have you been traveling lately? Well, when I travel, it's usually pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Pretty good, yeah. I'm hoping to get to Nova Scotia, where I used to live. But my last faraway trip was in Ireland. Okay. By the way, that's kind of a fun way to greet somebody. How have you been traveling lately? Fine, thanks. And you? <laughs> Fine, thanks. I've been in... How, in, how have you? <laughs> I've been in Poland, thanks. And you've been in Ireland. <laughs> tell, tell me some uh, experiences you had in Ireland. Okay. I, I don't know whether you were serious about the Poland part, but I had a wonderful trip to Poland back in 2007. Well, yeah, when you think about Poland and Ireland, they're both, like, freakishly friendly, wonderful, warm people. Absolutely. They're both countries that are very Catholic, and they are both countries that are Catholic in the north rather than in the south. I mean, you think about Spain and Italy being Catholic and so on, but these wonderful cultures in the north that have a strong sort of church heritage and this wonderful, come on in, let's have a drink and get to know each other uh, ambience. Did you find the people in Ireland were approachable? Beyond approachable, beyond approachable. The main (laughs) culture was warmth, music, and just being real human beings with uh, some deep pain. Deep pain? Uh, What kind of deep pain? Uh, Deep pain from the years and years of what's gone on in Ireland. Oh, yeah. Uh, Again, talking about economics, of course. They went up for a while when everybody was going up. And it was looking good, and people were going to Ireland and having jobs and all this. But reality hit again. And then you look before that, mm-hmm. and the fact that, well, you look at the United States and how many people came from Ireland because of economic reasons. You know, you can probably almost say the correlation misery in Europe equals per capita emigration to the United States. Mm-hmm. And uh, the most miserable parts of Europe probably had the greatest emigration, and Ireland certainly is up there in the top. And even today, it's so evocative. You're down in the south of Ireland, and they'll point up to the the high uh, reaches of the arable land, and and you can see where the farmland peters out, and then beyond that, there's still some some grooves in the the dirt, and and those are the unharvested um, potato uh, plantings from the potato famine. Yeah. And Carol, those hard lessons of history and those, those hard sort of roots of their heritage are kept alive in the music today. And when you go into a pub, it's like, it, it's, it's like it's happening right now Absolutely. when they sing those laments. Absolutely. And, and sing and play so beautifully. But yes, when you listen to it, and that's what I mean about the pain. You Isn't that a, it's kind of a unifying thing. As a tourist, you can sit in a bar, and maybe it's just because you've had a couple of beers, but you get caught up mm-hmm. in the love and the, and the sadness and the struggles 
of these people who remember battles from a century ago like they were just happening. Absolutely, and keep them alive, as you say. And I think that's part of where, you know, you you work hard, you feel hard, you play hard, too. Work hard, feel hard, play hard. I like that. That could be a a T-shirt in Ireland. (laughs) Yeah. Because you can go to the hurling match or one of the... Well, there you go. I was uh, fortunate enough to land in Ireland in Shannon Airport. I went to Ennis for my first three days to just get oriented. And I walked into a town in County Clare that was immersed in hurling because they were having a rematch between County Clare and County Cork. Oh, my goodness. The and, energy must have been incredible. Now, oh, for, oh, for our listeners who don't know, hurling is like the Irish national pastime. I, I always liken it to airborne hockey with no injury <laughs> like timeouts. It's like just it. they hurl this thing around, and, and it's just a, it seems like there's no rules. It's just, it's just a riot on the field, and the people are so caught up in oh, it. And it's totally. A, it's a contact sport just to be a spectator. And Carol, this is so exciting to remind people, if there is a hurling match going on, right. it's intense. And, and as a tourist, you can be part of the scene. You can immerse yourself You are yourself definitely, if you want to be, you are just welcomed, and, and it's it, totally accessible. Mm. And it's not that you're welcomed as a tourist. You're welcomed as a human being, and That's you are it. us. They, you <laughs> know, it's, it's, it's sort of a well-worn phrase, but they say in the pub, you're a, you're a guest the first night, and when you go back to that same pub the next night, you're, you're a regular. Yeah, yeah. And I'm so heartbroken at what's going on in other parts of the world. And yeah. when you think of how the extremists and the the combatants in Ireland have figured it out and yeah. they've learned to live together, and if they have some wacko on the extreme that, that does something violent, it doesn't blow everybody to the, to the, the fringes again. Right. They're more committed to the ongoing challenge of living together in spite of their differences yeah. uh, and, rather and still, than blowing out the middle. Right, and nobody's just crawling under the rug. People are still speaking up for yeah. their their needs and their political rights. We can learn a lot from going to yeah. Ireland as well as enjoy the music. Thanks, anyway. Carol, for your call. Thank you. Happy travels. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Saul in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania writes, I'm planning a two-week trip to Italy. We're trying to maximize the places we visit while minimizing the number of times we have to change hotels. Is it worth using two or three cities as a home base, or should we just deal with moving every two or three days? You know, Saul, a lot of people like to make a home base. You can make a home base in Rome inside trip out, a home base in Florence inside trip out, a home base in Siena, a home base in Milano or whatever. But I would rather relocate because I really like spending the evenings in the small towns. And when you side trip out from the big cities, you won't have the joy of being in small towns after dark. A lot of these small towns in Italy are inundated with tourist crowds during the middle of the day, but at night they retreat to the predictable plumbing of their big city hotels and the local people have made their money and then they become more relaxed. Uh, a tourist trap like San Gimignano or Orvieto may feel really touristy in the middle of the day, but if you enjoy the evening there, you'll have fine restaurants with uh, much cheaper prices than the big cities and you'll have hotels that are more affordable than the big cities and you'll enjoy the romance of these towns without all the heat and the intensity and the crowds of midday. Ed is on the phone from Manassas in Virginia. Ed, thanks for your call. Thanks a lot, Rick. Uh, Appreciate you giving the opportunity here to uh, talk about my trip to uh, Montenegro. Montenegro. Not many people go to Montenegro. No, and that's probably why I went there. My my travels to Europe tend to take me more off the path, the path less trod, at least as far as Americans are concerned. Mm-hmm. 
this certainly fit the bill. We've gone to the Adriatic area several times, Croatia, Slovenia. Ed, let's just uh, kind of paint the picture here. Montenegro would be a remote mountainous section, sort of the middle of former Yugoslavia, just a couple hours' drive from Dubrovnik. Everybody goes to Croatia, but to venture into Montenegro, that gets you apart from the tourist crowd. So what did you do and what did you find in Montenegro? Well, we first spent some time down in the Bay of Kotor, which is probably one of the more popular areas there, although compared to the rest of Europe or Croatia, certainly less so. But it's it's a beautiful fjord-like uh, setting. Uh, you don't have to go all the way to, to northern Europe to see one, although technically it's not a fjord, but it's just a beautiful, pristine little little bay there. You're right, Ed. When I, when I hear people, because I'm Norwegian and I'm sort of um, defensive about the misuse of the word uh, fjord, and people use the word fjord in a lot of... Uh, I think, mediocre ways. But when you say the fjord-like bay around Kotor in Montenegro, I think right on. That is definitely fjord-like. It qualifies. Yes, it, it certainly does. And there's there's a lot to see there. We spent several days there before we went to, to another location. But mm-hmm. uh, it's becoming more and more popular with cruise ships in that part of the region. Uh, you could be sitting in your hotel there and, and you see this big cruise ship. looks like it's a couple hundred yards off your front window and people waving to you. And uh, that, that's a little bit jarring from the, the setting, but it's, it's basically a peaceful area. We went there in September, which was in the shoulder season, and it uh, made for a, a little quieter, uh, quieter time. Did you go out uh, to the little island in the middle of the bay? Yes, the, uh, Our Lady the Rock, I believe they call it. Yeah, that. isn't that an interesting story? I believe uh, it was uh, said to be uh, a pile of rocks that kept building and building from sailors uh, who... Uh, wanted some good luck or something like that? Yeah, well, there was some association with the Virgin Mary, I believe, and uh, every time a sailor would come back from a safe voyage or whatever, they would toss a rock onto this uh, pile, and eventually it became an island, and they built a church on the island, and today it is just one of the most uh, dreamy and romantic little uh, islands with a sleepy old church on it, and I'll never forget there's a there was an embroidery in there by one of the ladies from the village just on the mainland nearby, and, and she was just a humble, faithful parishioner, and she embroidered this incredible religious scene with Mary and little angels and everything, and, and the, the angels around the border, the little cupids, were all done, the whole thing was done with either silk or her own hair, and she spent like 20 years making this thing, and you could see her hair getting gray in a progressive way with the little angels that decorated the border as she went through the years and aged with her supplies and uh, ingredients for this. And it is one of the most touching uh, little subtle uh, sights of, a, of a, the faith of a villager in a humble little hard scrabble community in a corner of Europe that very few people go to. But uh, that's an example of the sort of rich heritage right there in Montenegro. Right, right. The city of Kotor itself, I, you could say it's sort of a mini Dubrovnik, although obviously a, lo- a lower scale, but uh, I believe it was destroyed by an earthquake in 1979, they say, and, and totally rebuilt, but you could you could hardly tell that. But it's still a yeah. more easy-to-get-around version of Dubrovnik, if you will. But from there, you can zigzag up these amazing uh, switchbacks, and you get then into this basin up in the high mountains. And this is where we call this name Montenegro, uh, the Black Mountain, right? Cernogora, right. I think, locally. Right. And uh, to go up there, did you did you venture up into the high country? Well, we did, but not not that part of the high country. Uh, mm-hmm. I was going to... That was sort of our next stop. We, we were there during a time of year where they had a, were having a heat spell, and it was kind of warm, so we wanted to cool off. So we went into the high country, but we went to the uh, 
the northwest of the country, an area called Dermator National Park in the hmm. far northwest. It's the uh, largest national park in Montenegro, and it's a, a World Heritage Site. Okay. A beautiful, pristine area. It's probably less than three hours to drive there. The roads were great. And if you like any hiking, outdoor nature, hmm. uh, rafting, there's the Tara River right on the edge of it. It's just a beautiful, beautiful little corner of Europe that I'm sure very, very few people see. So this is Dermator, D-U-R-M-I-T-O-R? Yes, yes. Dermator National Park in Montenegro, and actually some whitewater rafting and uh, uh, good hiking. Yes, they have skiing there in the winter. It's uh, probably the main ski area of the Balkans. Also of interest, it was a a base for the partisans during World War II. Tito was based out of there. If you take a little walk along this, uh, what they call Black Lake, there's a little cave site that they point out, and this is where Tito hung out when they were trying to stay away from the, the Italians. Yeah. And that just the rugged terrain there remind it sort of evokes the the, the hard fought um, battles between the partisans and the uh, Nazis back in World War II, and why they would um, take refuge up in that just what seems like a godforsaken corner of what became Yugoslavia. Oh yeah, I'm sure it was much less accessible then. Mm-hmm. And uh, during the winter time, they get a lot, a lot of snow, so I could see easily how. Uh, you could hide away there for a while. Yeah, but. and until the modern road came up, there was just this trail, which you can see next to the modern road, and it was a, a donkey trail, basically. That was the one connection with this mountain basin with the Mediterranean or the Adriatic Sea and the rest of the world. And they had their kings or dukes or whatever ran, whoever ran the place, and, and they had one piano up there. And I'll never forget going to that palace, and this piano was brought up before there was a road. And it occurred to me, somebody literally carried that piano up the switchback road all the way to that palace wow. way up on top. And I just thought, what an amazing anomaly to have a palace with billiards tables and a piano and so on in the middle of all of that sort of medieval time warp. You can actually find that the sort of the sense of a time warp when you venture into the far corners of places that don't get a lot of tourism, like Montenegro. Yes, it certainly qualifies. I, I do want to see that area you're talking about. That's during my next trip to Montenegro, that's one of the areas I want to hit. I, I didn't even hit the the beach areas along the Adriatic mm-hmm. are very popular, but uh, yeah. certainly paths less trod are going to be further inland uh, in these areas you and I have talked about. I think there's some real high rewards for venturing away from the tourist crowds. Again, all the cruise ships go to Dubrovnik. I love it. It's the most exciting city in a lot of ways in that whole corner of Europe. But if you can just venture a couple hours away, either into Bosnia or into Montenegro or down into Albania, which is more and more open, that's where you find the adventures. And it's just around the corner. And I think it's uh, really accessible. It's certainly rewarding. And and it's something to to consider. Hey, Ed, thanks so much for uh, your insight into Montenegro. Okay. Thank you, Rick. Happy travels. Vincine from Texarkana, Texas, emails us. On our first day in Rome, we happened upon a group of dark-suited men with phones preparing to block a major street we were walking along for what appeared to be some sort of parade. Turns out the Pope was going to be in the procession that afternoon. Being a cradle Catholic, I was thrilled to wait two hours to see our new Pope, along with a beautiful procession of priests, nuns, and other Roman notoriety. What a wonderful travel surprise, even if we didn't get in at the Vatican Museum the next day. Our listeners have some interesting travel tales to share with us right now on Travel with Rick Steves at 877-333-7425. Marsha in Spokane, Washington, had a fun experience in the former Yugoslavia. Marsha, how was it? Actually, I have quite a few. In particular, I was thinking of the day we spent on Korchula a couple of years ago. Mm. Um, We actually spent three nights there, so we had two full days. And Mm. so one day we just kind of relaxed and went swimming and 
Let's, enjoy let's the describe Korchula first. It's the uh, little, sort of everybody knows about Dubrovnik again. That's sort of the uh, springboard. And if you want a small town with the same kind of stony patina of Dubrovnik or Venice, you would go to Korchula, the little mini Dubrovnik. It's uh, the main city or the main town on an island also called Korchula, right? Just a couple hours north of Dubrovnik. Right, yeah, and, and I liked it way better than Dubrovnik. Why was that? There are so many fewer people. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, it's I, very I thought, cute, and it's it's fairly touristy, but you don't have any of the crush that you get in Dubrovnik. No, no. I mean, it's definitely a tourist town, but it's still done in a nice way, and you don't have all those hordes of people from the cruise ships. So mm, Dubrovnik um, can be a just a nightmare when you get a, a perfect storm of a lot of cruise ships coming in at the uh, same time. That's yeah. a good day to get the heck out of Dubrovnik and go to Korchula. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. for sure. Well, one day, though, we rented a scooter and decided to explore the island a little bit. Hmm. And so we uh, we drove out to Lombarda, which we went to some beautiful vineyards, and there's a nice bay there where we swam for a while. You do have to be a little careful of the sea urchins. My husband managed to get a sea urchin in his foot. But, Ooh, what um, happens then? Do the spines break off? Yeah, he had uh, he had a little trouble with it later. The the spine broke off, and he had to go to a pharmacy and get some ointment for it. But um, it turned out to be okay eventually. But it was a little sore for a while. Hmm. But then he um, had to go into a he had to go into a Croatian pharmacy. Yes, we went into See, a Croatian pharmacy. <laughs> you wouldn't have had that experience otherwise. That's right. Thank you, Sea Urchin. So yeah. tell us more about your scooter ride around the island of Korchula, because uh, I know that you can get, it's amazing, you know, Korchula would be sort of the commercial center where you've got all the hotels and, uh, and, the, and the sort of formal beaches, but you can uh, discover tiny villages where you really become part of the local scene. Oh, yeah, for sure. We just went up the hill a ways and ended up kind of, there's sort of a spine along the length of the island. It's a small mountain, I guess, or a hill. Yeah. And so we just drove out there probably about halfway down the island. There was very little traffic uh, once we got out of town, very little traffic. And then we just chose a bay, and we drove down this very windy, steep road down to a, a beautiful bay, and, and we swam there for a while, and then we putted back up. I wasn't sure it was going to make it. but So you rented your motor scooter in Korchula? Yes. I love doing that, but you have to be careful. There's a lot of people who are sporting scars on their shoulders and elbows from taking a spill on those scooters when they don't appreciate the the rough gravel on those dirt roads on the islands of the Adriatic. Oh, yeah, you have to be careful for sure. Yeah, I could show you my scar. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it was, it was just so nice to get out of the town. I and, love and it, that feeling of the wind in your face and your hair all messed up and you come into a little town and you have a nice salad and a beach is waiting for you and you wonder, why aren't all the tourists here? This is so magical. That's right, magical. That's a good word for it. Well, thank you for your tip on uh, getting out of Dubrovnik and, and you would recommend Korchula, then not only the town of Korchula, but exploring the island. I would, for sure. Nice. All right. Marcia, thanks for your call. All right, thank you. Happy travels. Uh-huh, you too. Bye-bye. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get website support from Dana Bublitz and Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You can listen again whenever you like and find guest information in the details for each week's show. Our radio page is updated weekly at ricksteves.com. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. 
As classic, Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. Along those same lines, Europe 101 History and Art for the Traveller is a must-read for anyone who appreciates Europe's rich history and great art. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.